Welcome to the Delish Guest List Podcast, a deep dive into the lives and work of Hong Kong's crazy food and beverage industry leaders, hosted by The Beat Asia. Today, we've invited Chef Nathan Green to speak with us about his story journey working in Hong Kong, formerly working at 22 Ships and Ham and Sherry in Wan Chai, Rhoda in Sain Pun, and Henry at K11 Art Museum. Nate is the executive chef at Kilo Steakhouse and Rex Wine and Grill, two restaurants of varied price points, carving, quite literally, a path to challenge tastes for food and steak in Hong Kong. We spoke to Nate about his experiences and observations of the F&B industry, the money that moves it, food culture and mental health amongst chefs, starting with his departure from London. I left London just before I probably would have started to get things like TV work, Great British Menu, those sorts of things. Wow. All my friends now are the top chefs in London, right? The two mission star chefs, one star chefs, people pushing for three stars. They're my friends. They're the people I trained with. Mm. Okay, so I believe that there's enough talent there. No one, no one in London knows who I am. No one remembers me, you know. So therefore, it's very easy to bring Rex in as Rex, a brand. Gotcha. This amazing brand from... Hong Kong. It's so it's amazing not Rex by Nate Green. No, I, it, for me, I think it's quite dangerous to put a face to a brand if you know you want to be that. I mean, Rex, I don't really call it too much of a brand or a friend because it, it, Rex is so bespoke and unique. But let Rex be Rex. A kilo be kilo. Is it important to be at the back of the house and not to really present yourself as a, a guest celebrity chef as much? I don't, I don't see myself as that. At the end of the day, um, don't hold mission stars, mm. don't do TV, don't do books. Um, of course, I'm, I'm reasonably well-known in Hong Kong. I'm very visible, obviously, because of my tattoos, and people know when they see me. And, you know, we get people go, oh, you're Chef Rex. Hi, I, you know, I went to Henry, loved Henry. I went to, we used to follow you at ships. And all that's nice. And what, I, what I've been able to do is that, I'm a, I like to think I'm a pretty genuine person. So when I start getting on with people, I get on with them and, and we build rapport. And that makes people come back at the end of the day. So I have a very strong clientele base at my own clientele. Mm. And I'm able to transfer that to places. But I'll give you examples of like Rhoda. Uh, Some in my regs would be like, I would have come to Rhoda more, but it was just too far out of the way. And the same for Henry. I got clientele that won't come from central to tst really and everyone forgets that rex is the first restaurant i've ever done in central and it really made me realize how much my clientele base is central based do you think there's a hong kong love and hate relationship with the steakhouse what what makes it hard to do an independent steakhouse is that there's a grandeur to go into a hotel oh I'm going to take my clients out. We're going to the Rosewood. We're going to Grand Hyatt. You know, that grandeur helps dictate price point and that grandeur helps dictate experience. So, I mean, I get why people gravitate towards wanting to go to hotels for these experiences. Now, as an independent, there are things we can do that hotels can't do. You know, we can be more price conscious. We're not trying to hit high margins. We're not trying to hit 25% food cost, 28% food cost. We can hire the staff who we need here and there. And we can pay them what we need to pay them. Whereas a hotel, everything's so standardly strict. I can, a Rex, I write the menu every day. Wow. I'm not allowed to do that at the hotel. 
have to show the dish and I have to submit a recipe and I have to do this and that and this and that. And it's like it takes you six months to change your dish, by which time it's out of season, so you don't put it on until next year. Um, and that's where the scale of economy comes in. You know, the, the, the busier some, that, that's why sometimes the, the restaurants that make the most money or the restaurants that can be deemed the most successful are not always the fine dinings with 40 seats, 30 seats, omakases. I mean, you do you want 20 seat omakase and you're betting on 20 people spending 4,000 a head? Great. Or do you need, you know, I, I give you a great example of we used to be above upstairs from Bo Innovation. And me and Alvin used to talk and, uh, quite a lot. And uh, Bo was probably a 50 seat restaurant. And he's like, but how many covers did you want to say? Oh, 25. Yeah, not too bad, you know. It's you know, four or 5,000 a head. To make the same revenue at 22 ships, I was doing 120 covers for dinner and 50 covers for lunch for the same revenue. Wow. Right? So it's, it's also about that. It's also, people don't realize, you know, cheaper restaurants re rely on volume. Man, the amount, um, they have to work so much harder in some ways. It, it, it is different, but they have to work, the, the, the pressures in a fine dining are very different from the pressures in a casual. Casual, the pressures on volume and pumping it out and being fast. Fine dining is pressures on the quality. So, you know. I mean, it seems to me this approach of playing the opposite sides of the coins with this with this attack of creating a new generation of steakhouses, you know, your success eventually led to some failures with people not traveling to certain locations, places that you worked at previously, your involvement at Henry as well, not being able to exercise that freedom, working within a sort of constrained environment in a hotel. It's pretty smart, you know. You're giving steaks to an affordable price point, and then a luxurious price. When did you come up with this idea to hit two at the same time? I think you need ranges. There's no point in me trying to recreate another Rex. No point. You know, because at the end of the day, you can only have so many people in, in that bubble. You know, when you see chefs do it, they have their flagship and then they create their off-spins, which normally, for a better word, cash cows. You know, in, in, in a better word, that the idea is that there's something that can make you more revenue because at the end of the day, the more high-end something is, the more it costs you. Now, if someone came to me tomorrow and said, look, Nate, I want to do a, I want to do a new restaurant with you. We want to do something focused around steak, but we want something completely different, something luxurious for the Hong Kong market. Man, that would be a very different steak experience. But then, again, okay, I can be behind it and help create it, but then I need to find a chef for that with a face that has to be that driving face of that business. Because when you're charging that much money, it can't be like, oh, it's Nate's restaurant, but where is he? You know, it's like having Rolling Stones ticket, you go see the Stones, but Mick Jagger's not singing. <laughs> the kind, that's the best analogy I can give of how people view it, and again, especially in Hong Kong. I, I remember a road, people show up on a Monday night when it's my day off, and... Oh, we're not, oh, where's Nate? Oh, it's not working time. Oh, oh we, we'll come back another time. <laughs> which, which is, okay, thanks, but I mean, I train my guys. I'm 1% I'm of the cooking at the restaurant. The guys do 99% of it, whether I'm there or not. I guarantee it's the same food as when I'm there. I'm just checking the final product as it goes out the door. The perception is the chef's not there, the food's not as good. I have to be careful when I post things like when I'm going on holiday and things because it impacts the bookings. Hmm. You know? Wow. 
it, it, it's in it, but you have you have to you have to think that way. Like for us, it's not easy. And, and, and you know, for a lot of chefs, we I don't know. I, I talk about myself here and a few other people I know. I mean, I'm always very appreciative of all the support and the love that I've been given over the last, especially in Hong Kong, the last nine years. I mean, it, it's been fantastic for me. It's like it, it really has. But at some people, at some point, people have to understand that. You know, I don't crave attention. I'm very, I'm very um, introvert. Yeah, me going out, it's genuine, but I have to make myself do it. Otherwise, I, I don't necessarily want to do it, but I have to make myself do it because I know it's the right thing to do. But yes, my wife, uh, on a Sunday, the last thing I want to do is talk to people. <laughs> Sit on my chair and watch TV and my little boy and my little girl, they can play and that's all I want to do. I don't, I don't want to see people. I don't want to socialize. And, you know, one of the things I'm very passionate about um, is mental health awareness, especially among chefs. You know, well, I think it's like uh, four in every five chefs have issued, experienced some sort of uh, mental health issue or breakdown at some point in their lives or careers. And the guests don't understand that. Sometimes it's that pressure and that need to be there all the time and that thing that they put towards us, which we take because at the end of the day, it's also what we sign up for nowadays and part of us getting what we get, especially in the social media era. Um, but sometimes I don't think people see the pressure it puts on people. And, and you see more stuff about this. I think you know, I was watching the chef's, uh, the chef's table uh, pizza thing and they're talking to uh, Bonchi, the Italian pizza guy, and he talks about it, how it really impacted his mental health this celebrity status, actually he didn't really crave the drinking and the drugs and the da-da-da, the da-da-da. So many of us go through this. You know, there's, there's like, I've, I've tried, been trying to go sober for nearly two years. Unsuccessful. I can do periods, maybe two months, one month, two months here, one month there, two weeks here, three weeks there, but the guests expect me to have a drink with them and they actually get slightly offended when you're like, I'm not drinking. Like, so what's wrong with you, a chef? You should drink. They don't get the damage to my health that that does because it's not one drink with them. It's one drink with them, the table over there, because I can't say no to them because I've said yes to you. Then it's it's not just tonight. It's tomorrow night and the next night and the next night. And then it's you get that one table. Oh, let's do a shot. Okay, let's do a shot. <laughs> and look, it's not that like I get drunk, but it's like I can handle my alcohol. But I don't actually want to be drinking. I'm trying to not drink. And there's some guys that I really admire that have done that really well. They've stepped away. People like Jay Khan at Koa. Mm. Yes, dude's a bartender. And he's a bar guy and he's, he's gone sober. I'm like, man, respect to that because that's even harder for them. That is for us. Crazy. But I don't think that people really understand. And, and like I said, I'm not, I'm not complaining about it. I'm not moaning about it. Like, I accept the roles and the balance. And it is trying to find balance. But you'll find with most chefs, we're kind of very all or nothing people and we're very all in or not all in. Mm, 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 mm. I mean, they don't see it. I used to work 100 hours a week. Wow. I used to finish work 1 a.m., get home 2 a.m., 2.30 in the morning, back up at 6, in work for 7. My chefs can't even get to work when they only do a 10-hour day. Can't get to work on time. You know? And I'm not saying that's just a Hong Kong thing. That's a generational thing now. And it is a generational thing. And it's like, you want to get to where I go. I was a head chef in a, 20, a 27 in a Michelin star restaurant. You know, 
reason why I was was because I was working 100 hours a week, mm. you know, with the pressure. And, and of course, I mean, I, I know the maturity is not there at that age. I mean, I wasn't mature enough as a head chef probably till I was in my early mid, uh, mid to early 30s. I don't think that's when I matured enough to really be a good leader and a good chef, like a good head chef, good leader in that regards. It's all right when you're cooking someone else's food and someone else is giving you all the direction with what you're plating and things. You just really run in the kitchen at that point. But people don't see it. People, mm. I, I'd had my first nervous breakdown by the time I was 30, at 30. Full-on mental breakdown. Didn't work for a month. Wow. Just woke up one morning, didn't want to go to work, just shaking, didn't want to get out of bed. I just didn't know what to do because I've invested so much of my life into what I've done. People don't see that. Mm-hmm. I remember Rhoda. I remember kicking six girls out of the restaurant because they were obnoxious. And... I was actually going to comp most of their stuff, but then they demanded it, so I kicked them out. Right or wrong, you know, yeah, I wish I'd handled it a bit differently in hindsight. I do, you know. Certainly wish I didn't swear and tell them to get out, but, you know, they played the guilt card, trying to go on Hong Kong moms, and actually half the Hong Kong moms, <laughs> actually half the Hong Kong moms backed us because they know me personally. Yeah. And they were like, what did you do to upset him because he's a nice guy? Yeah. Y- you know what I mean? But it's like, then you get the six one-star reviews on Facebook. You get the, the, and that, That's why I don't re- read mm. review sites. I don't look at TripAdvisor. Frankly, I don't care. Yeah. Sadly, you need it for the tourism side of things, but I really don't care. I don't read Google reviews. I don't read Yelp reviews. Mm. <laughs> you know, because it, it's, it's funny for me because I think I'm one of the few generations that when I start to become a head chef was the start of Twitter, start of Instagram, start of social media reviewing. And that changed our industry massively. It was a double-edged sword. It was a good thing. And then it was not such a good thing in some ways, you know, like. And it, it really did change the landscape because also everyone's a foodie. Everyone's knowledgeable. Everyone's a blogger. The fact is this, like, I'll, I'll, get, I'll give you the example of a steak, right? I'll send a perfectly cooked medium rare steak out. It's not medium rare. <laughs> Dude, I've been cooking, doing this 25 years. So that's a medium <laughs> rare steak. Oh, you're not a Michelin star chef. What do you know? <laughs> What's I got to do with it? At the end of the day, I cooked at that level for 15, 10, 15 years, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> it just makes me laugh. Oh, why's my steak taking so long? I cook steak at home. It only takes 10 minutes. Yeah, we have to deal with this stuff. Everyone thinks they're an expert, you know? And like, I'm lucky because I, what I find is the, the kind of the more exclusively or higher end your restaurant is, unless you have to deal with this sort of thing. But it, most of my guests, they appreciate what we're doing. They know why. You know, we, we give people the why. It's like, you know, that's what makes our steaks good. You know, we we take the time. We're very specific about our techniques of how we do things, and, and, and that's it. But going back to my point, I mean, everyone thinks they're an expert. The internet makes everyone think they're an expert. It's like the couch football coach or the couch MMA expert or, you know, everyone, social media has mm. given this power to people where they actually think they, I think, I think I'll tell you one of the most beautiful things I saw recently was the menu, right? The film. And I was very dubious about watching it. I'm not a big fan of a lot of chef stuff. And it was a bit with the food blogger where he makes him cook. And I'm just like, yeah, that resonates so much. (laughs) 
you know, you're very good at talking about it. But can, and, and actually, it's funny because what you find is then, even with, and again, please don't take it the wrong way because I have massive respect for a lot of the KOLs, food writers and stuff. They're great people, a lot of them are good friends. But there are ones that are, they think they're professional chefs. It's like you couldn't do a 100 cup of service at a steakhouse, man. You wouldn't last two minutes. So before passing judgment, you know, actually be knowledgeable about what you're talking about and actually understand what you're talking about. Because a lot of people don't. You know, a lot of it's clickbait. And at the end of the day, I never really care too much because it goes off the internet in a second. There's so much out there. There's so much information and knowledge. And it's on there for two seconds and no one really cares, you know. Mm. But it's very interesting how people assume that F&B and food should be cheap. You know, our costs have gone through the roof in the last three years with COVID. Um, wages are up by, I'd say, about 20% on what they were three years ago, 25%. Wow. Ingredients costs up about 30%. Meat, in particular, is up about 40%. Uh, gas and electricity is up 100% for, for, for things like energy bills. Think about how much energy a kitchen uses. Induction electric gas hoods, removing all the extraction, air conditioning, refriger general refrigeration, freezers. It's a load of energy. Yeah. And it's doubled. Where does that come from? So the margins for restaurants to make money is getting less and less and less. As I warned regulars a year ago, I was like, prices will have to go up. You know, the prices will need to go up in the restaurant. Because, and that'll have to be across Hong Kong. Otherwise, restaurants aren't going to survive. They're not going to be here. And, and at the end of the day, you know, when we talk about um, climate change and food crisis through, through food systems, food should be one of the most expensive things we buy. <laughs> the amount of hands that touch it, the amount of people it goes through. We want to, if we want to truly impact um, climate change through the food system, you have to battle the economics first because economics dictates everything. You know, it's all well and good saying you should buy organic this and da-da-da, da-da-da, that costs a fortune. And, you know, some people don't have that money. And when their choice is a $2 battery farm chicken, they're going to buy the $2 battery farm chicken. They're going to yeah. buy the KFC. They're going to buy the McDonald's, all the stuff that is bad for the environment. You know, so I think that people have to just be aware. That it, and I think the problem that social media has created a lot is that everyone feels so entitled that they should be able to afford it. And for me, you know, when I was a young chef, the only way I could afford to eat at a Michelin-style restaurant was to go for lunch and for set lunch menu. That's the only way I could afford to go. I think we need to get back to that. I think people have to sit there. Look, the menu price is on the wall outside. You can't afford to come in here. Don't come in here. Mm. And it's not about trying to make people feel bad or not, but I can't afford a Ferrari. People need to start looking at those things. And, and I, I, I would urge people to stop giving the comment of, oh, it's too expensive, oh, this yeah. and that. Like, give a reason why. Okay, I didn't find it value. It's not that it's expensive. I didn't find it good value because I left hungry or, or you know, the staff don't, the food's outstanding, but maybe the staff aren't good at explaining things or vice versa. The service is great, but the quality of the food is not so good. Like, give constructive feedback. Don't just be like, oh, it's expensive, you know, because everyone's got their overhead to pay. And, and that's why you'll find especially with Western food that actually it's quite hard to go and eat Western food without racking up a five, six, seven hundred dollar bill because at the end of the day all the all the products got to be imported. <coughs> hmm. You can't expect to pay 
cheap prices and then have a premium product. Mm. Premium products cost money. Hello, listeners. This is your host, Ruben Verbes, dropping in to tell you that we are published by TheBeat.Asia, the fastest-growing regional publication for F&B news, event coverage, nightlife happenings, culture, and more. Find us at TheBeat.Asia to feel the pulse of Hong Kong and Asia. All right, let's get back to Nate. Um, sadly, in today's world, people think they should be, especially with food, carrots, carrot. Piece of asparagus, piece of asparagus, piece of truffles, piece of truffle, piece of beef, piece of beef, but it's not the case. You know, people understand it with wine, they understand it with whiskey, and a lot of things wrong, people do understand it, but you're constantly fighting this battle, which just gets exhausting. So do you think this is a a blessing in disguise, but a cost in itself? You balance what I hear from what you've just said is there's a balance. There's a balance of mental health, there's a balance of drinking, there's a balance of the affordability versus the aspirational aspect of your two restaurants. Is this balance always pulling, but always pushing you in a good direction? I don't think always. I think you need good people around you. Yeah. I'm really blessed to have good people around me. Uh, Chef Bombana, for example, you know, fantastic mentor in a lot of ways. Um, I have my wife, I have my brother very knowledge about restaurants and people like Shane Osborne, who is like a, he's kind of like a very big brother to a lot of the younger chefs in Hong Kong guys like myself. Um, always someone who we can call on and talk to. And we have quite a healthy chef community within ourselves. And we, there's a group of us. We always meet up, we talk, we have a beer, we shoot the shit, so to speak, you know, we talk about the industry and we're all very honest, you know, oh, I'm really worried, you know, the restaurant's quiet tonight. And then they're like, no, same here, man. We've only got four covers as well. Mm. We're, no one's trying to sugarcoat things. No one's there going, oh, yeah, we're fully booked every night. You know, like everyone's very, and not in a pessimistic view. But at the end of the day, we're not doing this big bounce back. It's going to take to the end of the year to recover. And we have to accept that, you know. And what what helps us is, that communication between ourselves, that support, it is almost like a tribe in a lot of ways. But I mean, balance needs to be there. Everything needs yeah. to be there. It's just, yeah, you are always being pulled by something or pushing by something. It's not always a good thing. You know, I'll, I'll always re- relate restaurants. It's, it's like a flow of water. At the end of the day, it's going to take its path one way or the other. It's going to, there's going to be times when, there's more pressure, more force, more it's going to run smoothly and steadily. There's going to be times when it's like a waterfall. There's times when there's no flow at all. Our job is very reactive. At the end of, at the, end of the day, you know, I think one of the big problems I see sometimes of the understanding of what we do is that today we can have the greatest service ever. Mm, mm. Smooth. Every guest comes on time. Yeah. No day's ever the same. You know, but there are certain jobs you come in, you load your Excel sheet, you punch your numbers in, and da 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 okay, time to go home. That you know. Which you I want, I could never do that. You don't want that. Can you can you can you ever imagine me doing that? No. I mean it's you know I and, and for me actually, the hardest thing to run in a restaurant is a quiet restaurant. Mm. Like, I love the adrenaline. I love the buzz. You know. People forget, I mean, even for me with Rex, it took me a while to get used to Rex only doing kind of 
50, 60 covers. Yeah. Gone from Henry where we do 120, Rhoda we did 120, 140, uh, ships 140, Arbutus in London 250, 100 for lunch, a square, 120 for dinner, two Michelin star restaurant, you know, pubs doing 250 on a Sunday lunch. Yeah, it's, like, it's just nonstop pumping. Yeah. And even that takes time to slow yourself down, enjoy it, spend that extra couple of seconds to make sure things are even the next level up, right? Yeah. And and, and a lot of us are adrenaline junkies. A lot of chefs are adrenaline junkies. <laughs> you know, because that's how your body works. It's like, you get. that's why I can never do a restaurant that only opens for dinner. Are you chasing that high? I, yeah, I need it. It makes you feel alive. It's why it's why it's why I do BJJ, right? <laughs> you, you know, like for me, like fighting. I like fighting. Do you think? Do you think doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is one of those ways to improve your mental health? Yeah, hundred percent. Because it seems to me, you know, you've been your job in the pub kitchen in the UK, uh, doing Sunday lunches, gravy-filled, salty meals, yeah. then working in the city of London uh, at the Two Mission Star restaurant, heading that then Henry, Rhoda, 22 ships. Now here, you're doing less covers. You're less, I wouldn't say less busy, but you're serving fewer and fewer people. Mm. Is that inevitably assisting the betterment of your mental health? I think so. What, what it allows me to do, it allows me to be able to take a little break and go out to the customers, less pressure, reduce mm. the space of the service, right? It allows me to train my team better. Yeah. It allows me to spend a little bit more time. It allows me to step back a little bit more. What I try and do is one of my one of my number twos. They will, I let them lead the kitchen in terms of the service, read the tickets, call the tickets. Because then, if I need to go out to the dining room, they're still in charge of running the kitchen, so nothing stops. I'll tend to stand on the side to one side, observing. Hmm. And then normally I'll stand on the hot side so I can see the guys cooking, and I'll jump in if I need to show them something or I see something that's not quite right, and and I that. I really enjoy it. I enjoy the teaching aspect. Because mm, mm, mm. at the end of the day, like I say, I'm 41 now. Mm, mm, when I'm 50, do you really think I want to be in a hot, sweaty kitchen working till 10.30 at night, 11 o'clock at night when I've been there since 9 a.m. in the morning? Because that's the thing people forget, right? I yeah. literally had someone come to me the other day and said, oh, what time do you start working? I'm like, oh, normally in about 8.30, 9 in the morning. And they're like, oh, why so early? You, know, you don't start lunch till 12. I'm like, what do you think we do? Just come in and open a few packets and we're ready for service? Uh, like people literally think that way. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think, even with a steakhouse, like there's a lot of preparation that goes into what we do. Do you think that these annoying uh, judgments and stereotypes from guests pick at your mental health? Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. Especially when it comes to accolades and things, oh, you don't have a star, mm. you don't have this, right? Like, and I, I come back to that a lot, but you, you know, it's true. It, it's it's what I love about, for example, it's what I love about New York. You can be as revered as a pizza chef or a grill chef as any three mission star chef. The same you could say for Hong Kong. You There's know. some fantastic dim sum chefs that. Yeah, they're, 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 with local cuisine, they understand it a lot more than they do with. Western cuisine. So what's the limitations on the Western side in Hong Kong? They just don't understand it. Really? I mean, look, I mean, it, it's a funny market and I don't want to get any, any backlash for this, but like, in the same way, I'm not going to turn around, I've been here nine years, I am not going to turn around and tell anyone by any stretch of the imagination, I really know anything about Cantonese food. Mm. I know what I like, 
I know where are good restaurants. I know when I'm eating good Cantonese food. But I'm in no position to comment about how a chef cooks his food. Yeah. Right, because I just don't know. I don't understand it enough, right? And I feel it's the same way with Western cuisine. People just don't understand it. I will literally get people sometimes come to us say, oh, your portions are too big. You're a steakhouse. Oh, the steaks are so big. I'm like, it's a regular, a 16-ounce steak's a regular size for a steak. A 14-ounce steak's a regular size. What, what do you want? Oh, we just want something like like 100 grams. It's like, so you want a little piece of slice of roast beef. They don't, they just don't get it. Would you cook and are you cooking to counter that belief? We try and find ways to make it accessible. Like we'll do like a pave cut, which is like a small square block of strip line. We can only do it with strip lines. Yeah, to try and help. You know, six ounce, not too much, especially for the richer, more expensive beef, so people can try it. Um, but yeah, I think that we've made portion sizes a touch smaller, but you know, at the end of the day, people will then, they, they turn around to me, oh, you should make the portion size one charge less. We can't do that. We're not a Nomakase restaurant. Problem is people want the experience of other things elsewhere. And, and we also get this issue with... Um, Say we get a food blogger, a celebrity, or a food writer in, they'll come and they'll have a meal. Generally, like, I'll go to the table if I know them, especially, and just, you know, can I help you to one Oh, what, what do you recommend tonight? I'll tell them what I recommend. They'll eat it, they'll post about it. And then next week you get, uh, uh, they, they, the table will sit down and, uh, yeah, can we help you, you know, go through the menu? No, no, no. They just get their phone, get the bloggers thing. Oh, we want this, we want what this person had. It's like, why don't you come and have your own experience? Mm. People are so desperate. Well, I don't say desperate. People are so worried to get their choices in a restaurant wrong, which I find hilarious. Mm. They don't even read the menu. They just go, I want what this person had because it must be good because they wrote that review. But my clientele don't really look at Instagram and things like that. It's very word of mouth. It's very corporate, which is... For me, how I like it personally, and it's nothing against the other side of it. And it, but I went through that with Rhoda, mm-hmm. where it's just packed full of foodies and KOLs that never come back. And it kind of bit us a bit in the ass when the traveling came back because these guys all left town and they're all busy with work. And we're having to build things back up, and we're finding a nice balance now between our clientele, which is really good. We've got new guests coming in all the time, we've got new regulars, we've got uh, different generational things, we've got uh, a little bit more mainland Chinese coming through now, which is fantastic. Uh, you know, so I feel like we've done the right thing there. You know, we, we've looked at it like um, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, with Rex, it's been a very holistic growth. Kilo's a little bit different. It needs that that buzz and that push because it's mm. K11. It's got, it, you know, it's a beautiful harbour view. Um, stunning harbour view. Uh, but people just forget you're there, you know, at the end of the day. For the traveller who hasn't been and for the Hong Konger who haven't mm. visited... Uh, kilo and rex sell it to them what is what are those two concepts what are those two restaurants and what what are the experiences that you can get i think in a short a short way of putting it for rex rex is like a bespoke tailored experience mm-hmm. you know we have four or five different types of beef on the menu many of our beefs are exclusive to us no one else can get them certainly people can't treat them the way we treat them um and we craft everything to you very personalized service nice wine list um, intimate setting, everything about it is decadent. Mm. You know, I'm very proud of that. You know, it's very, there's a lot of love in that restaurant, you know. Uh, and then Kilo, Kilo is just f- fun. 
<laughs> you know, like I always like liken the skylines like Neon Miami, you know, get a nice playlist <laughs> going, get a little bit of pump on, get some cocktails going. And, and again, we price it in a way that you can go and have fun. It's not You're not going to be priced out by the restaurant. You know, it, it's affordable. It's a good price point. Food's nice, good for sharing, good for individual, good for date night, good for group of 12 friends to go, um, good for drop-in. And you, you're going to have a good time there. Mm -hmm. Nice staff, friendly environment, you know. Uh, and again, like I say, it has a spectacular view, you know. It, it's right on the waterfront, right on the waterfront of, of the harbour. You've got a beautiful view of uh, Wan Chai and uh, Causeway Bay. Um and we're very proud of it. It's just food's super nice. It's just people need to take time to, to kind of remember it's there and get to go then. And, you know, it's not easy to find your way around the malls, but we're there. You know, we're, we're just up on the sixth floor. So um, we always knew as a space it's going to take a good 12 months to, to really build that people remember it's there and mm. grow the reputation of it because mm. it is a tough location. It's not an easy location. You know, we know that. And I think that one of the big things people have to remember is that problem for us as restaurateurs is everyone's always looking for the new place rather than trying to establish things that have got a legacy that have been there a long time whereas the great thing about being with chef is he's a very patient man yeah. and he believes in playing the long game and and you know he knows it takes you know it used to take five years to get a mission start it used to take you know 20 years to get three you, you know now it now you can get a star in six months for some places mm. and don't get me wrong i'm sure they deserve it I'm sure Michelin won't be giving out if they didn't. But, you know, there's especially in a city like Hong Kong, there's a pressure. You've got to get it in the first year or the second year. or you know, Even someone like Shane at Arcane took him four years and the guy was a two Michelin star chef in London for 10 years. You, you know, so I think I'm a firm believer everything happens for a reason and everything happens at the right times. So for us, it's we're going forward positively, yeah. very positively, but we're also under no... Um, we're under no kind of uh, delusion that we're Hong Kong's not back yet. Mm, mm. You, you know, it's not back. I mean, I'm sorry, people saying that it's you, it's. I'm not gonna say delusional. Some industries, yeah, it's good for them. You know, events and things like that. Yeah, they they are back. But our industry, you know, the world over, F and B got screwed during mm. COVID. The world over, and yet in most countries, we're the second to third largest employer. And let's not forget the knock-on of uh, how much cargo we fly, how much shipping revolves around F&B, how much uh, the food suppliers, the farmers, they're all impacted by government mm. decision to close down F&B. <laughs> you know, it impacted so many people. And for many of us, we're still trying to get our lives back on track from, from that, you know? you know. No pay leave, not getting bonuses, uh, restaurants shutting, and, and, you know, so many people left the industry. So now we're facing the, the job crisis, the job shortage. Jesus. And, man, I could finish work at 6 o'clock every night. <laughs> Go home, see the kids, read them a bedtime story, cook dinner, you know, go for a run, whatever I wanted to do, mm. right? I had a life for the best part of six months, <laughs> you know, seven months, you know. So I understand why people left our industry. Yeah. You know, and you know the thing that's going to kill our industry the most is going to be staff shortage. You know that that's going to be the thing. Rest people will consolidate. People will consolidate down their restaurants. People that have less restaurants, 
you're probably going to see more big name chefs running smaller operations where they're actually in the kitchen with one or two other staff, mm. smaller menus. And don't get me wrong, it will go for a cycle. That'll be a cycle for five, six, seven, eight years. And then people will start realizing there's money in restaurants again and they'll start to open up restaurants again because people will want to go back into the restaurant trade because there's money in it. So, but yeah, I mean, our biggest challenge right now, I think, facing us is, is staffing. You know, that's why I'd always urge again for guests, you know, be nice to the staff. Mm. But I mean, yeah. like, but it's funny just how people, the way people treat the, the F&B industry, you know, like, so I think a lot of time we feel like second rate class citizen. It, obviously, you get to a certain level where you're not treated like that. But, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, oh, you're a chef. Well, certainly used to be, a little less so nowadays, but you're a chef. Mm. And then you're like, oh, yeah, but I work for the people like Gordon Ramsay. And then they're like, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and then, then they're like, oh, okay, okay. You, you, you know, so it's it's uh, it's just funny, man. It's, it's yeah. a weird industry. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, would I change working in the F&B industry? I don't know, man. If, if, if someone had told me our industry was like this, it was going to be like this in when I was 20, I probably would, yeah, I probably would have changed the industry as well. But, um I wouldn't change it for the world either. I mean, look, it brought me to Hong Kong. It, it's given me nice things. Got a wonderful family. I've got beautiful, beautiful kids, lovely wife. And, you know, I've had a many amazing experiences, you know, whether it's cooking for celebrities, meeting the royal family, uh, doing all that sort of stuff. And just even for me, the friends I've met in Hong Kong, the connections I've made, especially in Hong Kong. Hong Kong, Hong Kong gave me back my life. And so I try and take Saturdays off. And then, Oh, I'm coming to Rex tonight. It's like, okay, well, that's another four hours. I'm not going to get to see my kids. And they're young, you know, and they change so much and they grow so much. It's why you'll never see me at the restaurant on Christmas. You'll never see me at the restaurant on Mother's Day. You'll never see me on the restaurant on Father's Day. Because I have a responsibility to my wife and family, mm. you know. And that, that side of it, I'm non-negotiable about. Yeah. Like, that's that's my where I draw the line. It's like, this is non-negotiable. You know, like, I'm sorry. You know, someone like, oh, you know, I'm coming on this day, or, or you're not going to be there. No, it's my son's birthday. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. Doesn't mean I don't care. Doesn't mean I don't appreciate your business. I'll make sure you're well looked after. But there is this expectation from people. And look, I'm, I'm, I work, I don't have to work six days a week, but I do most of the time. So that, that's why my focus is always in the following priorities, always the kids. Mm work and then health fitness moving on to our rapid fire questions nate you have less than 30 seconds to come up with a few words to answer each question if you fail to come up <laughs> if you fail to come up with an answer in five seconds we'll move on to the next one are you ready yes what wakes you up in the morning my son hit me in the nuts <laughs> as you lay dying what's the one meal you would like to have on your deathbed shepherd's pine baked beans what is your favorite aspect of Cantonese cuisine? Char siu. What is one thing that all chefs must do perfectly to do well in the industry? Season things. Do you have any unusual phobias? Snakes. What first attracted you to Hong Kong? I want to get out of London. <laughs> what has been the proudest moment of your F&B career so far? I think constant change. Describe your favorite tattoo and why it's important to you. Uh, my daughter's tattoo on my neck. Let's see it. Stunning. What's the worst lie you've ever told to impress someone? I can't think of too many. 
What do you miss about the UK? Pubs. What are you putting in your time capsule to open in 50 years' time? Oh, something fermented. <laughs> What's it like being Nate Green? Pretty straightforward. <laughs> uh, you once told me that you were very good at numbers. What's your favorite number? Six. Why? Uh, all our birthdays are denominations of six. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, what are you cooking in the coming months that you can share with us on the podcast? We've got a new take on a beef wellington that I'm working on that's going to be epic because it's going to be three different cuts of beef made together. Wow. A bit of secondary cut, braised cut, and then steak. Wow. Yeah. So it's going to be, if I can make it work, it'll be epic. When can we expect to see that? Uh, maybe next month. Beautiful. Maybe next month. We'll be looking out for that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. No worries. Yeah. Keep your finger on the pulse and tap follow to keep up with the Beat Asia to hear more colorful chats and rich stories. This episode is hosted by myself, Ruben Verabes. Big shout out to Nate Green for coming on the Delish guest list to share his story. Our producer for this episode is Marcus Tremer, and we are edited by Natsuki Arita. That's all for this episode. See you in the next one.